We also knew that the Japanese had returned millions of vials to Pfizer and Moderna because of visible debris in the bottom. And that came out, you know, in the press feeds uh, since the onset of the vaccine campaign. So we knew something was wrong. But then this bombshell report uh, was published by Schmeling and colleagues from Denmark. And Schmeling had every Pfizer lot or batch. So they had the code for everyone and they had every complication because the Danish system records everything in their national database. So they had it nailed down. This is what they found. There was approximately 32% of all the doses, the first batch group, and this will be shown on the lower part of the slide, where there were zero side effects, zero. The line never even got off the baseline, as if nothing was injected. Then there was another two-thirds or 70% or so where th there was a rate of side effects. The, the more doses given out of that vial, they, they, they piled up, but it wasn't um, that notable. And then finally, there was a third batch group or third lot group. And there, the side effects were through the roof. Now, it only represented 4.2% of doses, but we're talking serious things, hospitalization, death, myocarditis, blood clots. You can see that group shown in blue through the roof. I'm so pleased to introduce you to Tanya Gaw, the founder and leader of Action for Canada. For those of you who are new to the Empower Hour, Tanya and Action for Canada are on the front lines of educating and empowering Canadians of all ages to stand up for our rights and freedoms. Every week at 4.45 Pacific time, Tanya shares important updates and reports with us. And in just a few moments, she'll be coming on to have a conversation with our special special guest speaker. Dr. Peter McCullough is a respected American internist, cardiologist, and epidemiologist. In addition to his many duties, he also manages the cardiovascular complications of both the viral infection and the injuries that developed in patients after receiving the COVID-19 injection. He has dozens of peer-reviewed publications and has commented extensively on the medical response to the COVID-19 crisis. He has reviewed thousands of reports, participated in scientific congresses, group discussions, and press releases, has testified before Congress, and has won numerous awards during his distinguished medical career. As one of the world's top experts on COVID-19, Dr. McCullough has shown his great strength of character and integrity as he has upheld his oath and has provided his patients with the best possible protocol for treating respiratory illness in spite of government threats and malfeasance. Due to Dr. McCullough's very busy schedule, this interview was pre-recorded, so there will be no Q&A this evening. So now, my friends, I invite you to sit back and get comfortable as we listen to this very informative conversation between Tanya and Dr. Peter McCullough. Well, thank you, Heather, and uh, welcome, Dr. McCullough. It's so good to have you back on the show. Last time you were on, we went viral. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you're coming with some important information, a great conversation today. So welcome and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. 
All right. Well, first of all, I want to ask our viewers to make sure that they subscribe to your Substack because I receive your emails every day and they are so informative. They provide breaking news. And I think that's one of the, the best reports with the greatest information out there. And so just want to, uh, that will be in our description and it will be in the chat during the Empower Hour. So make sure you subscribe. All right. As well, uh, before we actually dig in, there's a couple of breaking news stories going on right now. One, a report from Denmark, and then, of course, the um, autopsy report that you and your colleagues have also produced. But you were uh, recently before the European uh, uh, Parliament for the European Citizens Initiative, I believe it was called. And uh, that initiative uh, is because there's a lot of people who have been concerned about all of this talk about a WHO pandemic treaty alliance and the WHO regulations. So uh, what do you have to uh, give people an update on on that? And uh, what was your participation in it? Two days ago, I I issued uh, prepared remarks to the European Parliament. And uh, there, there was a prestigious panel, including UK Member of Parliament, Andrew Brigden. Uh, from Germany was Christine Anderson, uh, notable uh, Belgian uh, clinical psychologist, Matthias Desmond, author of The Psychology of Totalitarianism, of which I've contributed to that book. Um, and, and key presentations, Nick Hudson, who leads uh, Panda, an NGO from South Africa. The message was clear that the WHO's aspirations, and to make, it, to make it very, very transparent, the WHO aspires to have dominion over all plants, animals, and humans in the world. And when I mean dominion, they want control. They want to be able to declare climate emergencies and influence uh, plant life in the, in the world. They want control over veterinary medicine, what vaccines, uh, food supplies, cattle, swine, uh, et cetera. And they want total control over healthcare through healthcare emergencies, uh, both acute and chronic. Uh, this is a giant overreach. And through the pandemic treaty alliance, and now the, uh, the, the new rules that the WHO were issued, they're trying to actually achieve this with member nations binding by international law. Meaning if they declare, let's say, uh, you know, an Ebola emergency that they say to shut down, that we have to shut down. So at this point in time, uh, the only path forward is to withdraw from the WHO, from the member nations. And if that doesn't happen, then to simply not have any of this written into Canadian law or American law. And if it's not a treaty, it doesn't automatically get written into law anyway. So well, uh, I can tell you as a doctor, the WHO offers me no advantages. Uh, mm -hmm. The WHO traditionally only does outbreak analysis and vitro diagnostics and data analytics. Uh, they're not equipped to manage worldwide emergencies. And boy, were they a disaster during the COVID-19 pandemic. A hundred percent. They're untrustworthy. They're part of that global cabal, the global government, and moving towards that. Uh, the greatest heist in the history of the world is taking place as they empty everybody's bank accounts to uh, feed this monster. And as far as I'm concerned, and, and what I tell all of our members here in Canada is I say knowledge is power, and that comes from knowing what your constitution, your charter rights, the criminal code. And in our constitution, according to uh, Section 52.1, it says that uh, it is 
the supreme law of Canada, and any law that is inconsistent with the provisions of the Constitution is to the extent of the inconsistency of no force or effect. So I say that the UN, WHO, all that little oligarch are unelected um, officials, and they have no say, even if Trudeau, who is completely on board with them, if it's in violation of our Constitution and our Charter of Rights, it's of no force or effect. So we're going, we need to stand firm. People need to understand what their rights are and they stand firm with confidence and just do not comply. So that's a great way to start the program moving forward once we start, you know, hearing the news that's coming next. So let's go to the uh, research report from Denmark. And it was uh, published in the European Journal of uh, Clinical Investigation on the batch-dependent safety of the mRNA COVID-19 vaccine. And so why don't you tell us a little bit or a whole lot about what this report revealed? Well, let's set the stage here. Uh, We had hints from the U.S. CDC Vaccine Aversive Event Reporting System that not all the batches, all the lots of vaccines were the same. There were hints that side effects were piling up in certain lots and not piling up in others. Now, a lot is a large volume of the vaccine that is made at one time and it's divided into vials. And lots initially could have been, you know, tens of liters uh, and then later on became much larger, you know, hundreds of liters of, of vaccine material. And it's it's lipid nanoparticles that can aggregate uh, unstable messenger RNA and other factors. So we had hints in the U.S. data, but enough where Senator Ron Johnson wrote a letter to the CDC and FDA and said, it looks like the, the, there's a problem with the lots and uh, presented the data that we had available was not peer reviewed. And one of the shortcomings of the VAERS system is that the lot number is illegible on the vaccine card in a large percentage. So we actually don't know. And of course, in the VAERS system, only a fraction of the adverse events are reported. So VAERS is very limited, but still looked like there was a problem. We also knew that the Japanese had returned millions of vials to Pfizer and Moderna because of visible debris in the bottom. And that came out, you know, in the press feeds uh, since the onset of the vaccine campaign. So we knew something was wrong. But then this bombshell report uh, was published by Schmeling and colleagues from Denmark. And Schmeling had every Pfizer lot or batch. So they had the code for everyone and they had every complication because the Danish system records everything in their national database. So they had it nailed down. This is what they found. There was approximately 32% of all the doses, the first batch group, and this will be shown on the lower part of the slide, where there were zero side effects, zero. The line never even got off the baseline, as if nothing was injected. Then there was another two-thirds or 70% or so where there was a rate of side effects, the the more doses given out of that vial, they they piled up, but it wasn't um, that notable. And then finally, there was a third batch group or third lot group. And there, the side effects were through the roof. Now, it only represented 4.2% of doses, but we're talking serious things, hospitalization, death, myocarditis, blood clots. You can see that group shown in blue through the roof. And this roughly matched uh, other sources of data. So, for instance, our CDC vSafe data, which is a self-reported data on the cell phone, 
CDC vSafe said 7.7% of Americans take a vaccine. It's so toxic, they have to go to the ER or the hospital in the next couple of days. It kind of fits with this number. It's round about that number. Another data point was a Zogby survey done in the United States this summer of 2022. They found that 15% of Americans have some new disease from taking the vaccine. So again, it fits between that, that green group and the blue group as shown. So I can tell you, this is convincing. I did share this personally with Senator Ron Johnson, who sent the original letter and said, listen, we clearly have a batch problem, but this explains something that's very important. The toughest question I got when I went on Joe Rogan, and I said on, I said all the records for his podcast, Eclipsing Elon Musk, anybody's come on afterwards. Rogan asked me, he said, okay, Dr. McCullough, if these vaccines are so bad, how come everybody doesn't have a side effect or die? Well, here's the answer. The answer is there's incredible variability. A third of people, nothing happens. Thank the Lord. Two thirds, it's something moderate. And then terribly, 4.2%, it's, it's, it can be deadly. I, you know, and it's interesting because I said right from the very beginning when they started to uh, uh, administer these, uh, I don't even want to call it a vaccine, this jab, is that, you know, there were uh, those that had very, very serious adverse uh, effects. There were those with more mild, a sore arm, um, headache fever or something, rashes. And then there were those that had no effect at all. And so our team was, you know, talking about this. And I said, you know, if it's going to be an experimental injection, they have to have a placebo. And so I've always said from the beginning that I believe uh, a mass amount of the injections given were very possibly placebos, because if they had given the wrong jab to begin with, and everybody started dropping dead, and everybody started becoming injured, then nobody would take a second vaccine, and they would never go for the boosters. And and so when I'm seeing this report, yeah, yeah, it's it's hard to ascribe a motive. Uh, you know, I think there probably is a manufacturing explanation. Uh, first off, uh, in the United States, uh, Pfizer and Moderna, which is 94 percent of all the shots in the United States, they don't make the products themselves. They're actually made by U.S. biodefense contractors. This is very important. Moderna, for example, is made by Resilient. That's actually a Canadian company. They're in uh, Mississauga. But under the emergency use authorized contracts, there's no inspection. Pfizer and Moderna have never inspected their own vials. Not once. No inspections for quality, purity, or safety. And, and so what's very possible, since all of the vaccine devastating injuries and deaths appear to be too much spike protein, it's very possible that the lipid nanoparticles kind of clump together like, like in a soup. And some people get a loaded vial where they get a ton of messenger RNA and some people get next to none. Uh, another feature is that during the clinical trials, the vials were all single use vials, one shot per patient, placebo or real, real, real thing. And then when we got to the uh, clinical program, it was six shots per vial. So the nurses were injecting air. They were keeping it out. There must be variability. We were told they had to be super cooled. Uh, but then the buffer changed. It didn't matter anymore. So there must be a lot of haphazard carelessness to it. And then a recent report by Kevin McKernan broke the news that the vaccines are heavily contaminated with cDNA, which are nucleotides which anneal to the messenger RNA and make a reverse code, not complete, but at least a partial code. And so they may be coding for 
partial fragments of spike protein, and they quickly get into the human nucleus and verse transcribe. That may be in the causal pathway to death. Um, none of these are good explanations. There's clearly a batch uh, a problem, but it explains what we see. Let me give an example. My wife is Canadian, and her parents lived in Toronto. We rescued them and brought them to the United States during the pandemic. In order to get out of Toronto, they had to take vaccines. So my wife's mother took two shots in Toronto, and she never got a sore arm, nothing, no fever, no symptoms at all. And she can't understand why we have any concerns regarding the vaccine. She goes, that was easier than a flu shot. Well, she must have been in that first batch group. It was nothing. Well, that's why I'm saying, right, if, if they had intentionally put out batches that were specifically sal saline, I mean, I've had um, one nurse tell me that she saw the marked and she knew that it was saline that they were giving. And we know other doctors who have specifically given saline purposely in order to save lives. So if, if, if not really if, but we know that the WEF and the, and the UN have been strategizing pre-COVID. They had patents on the COVID-19 shots. They had lots of time to uh, do proper uh, trials and investigations on this, but now they release this on the public. And at the same time, they're talking about world population control. People want to say it's conspiracy theory, but it's actually coming out of their mouths. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's in line with their uh, climate change uh, propaganda and, and the rest of it. So how can we how can we look at this new information and see the chart? Uh, you know, Trenzia, will you bring that up one more time and see that that yellow group was never affected in any way by the jab? And there was that uh, just so people understand what the spike is. And so what the report is saying is that the uh, 4.2 batch, those doses were responsible for 71% of the adverse um, reactions. That, that's a huge spike. That's, we, and, and in many cases, it, it's a lethal spike. And no, who knows the longevity of this is what's going to come in the future for these people as far as cancer, myocarditis, and other side effects. And then the um, other dose that you see there in green were the lesser side effects down to the yellow. I don't know. So what do you have to say about that, Dr. McCullough, the fact that this, this was all prearranged and uh, aligned? Is it very feasible that the COVID vaccines could have been unleashed with the fact that we they were intentionally putting saline doses out there so that people wouldn't be afraid to take it so that they could look at the anti-vaxxers and chastise them and feel like heroes because, you know, they, they are protecting the elderly and children and taking this jab. Do you think there's something more sinister afoot possibly? You know, I just say when there's another statistical um yeah, uh, kind of inference from the data, and that is variation explained. Th that means the batch explained, you know, over seventy-five percent of the variation in the in the occurrence of these serious adverse events. That means that there there there's, there are some human factors, but they're not that important. Meaning, you know, if someone has a blood clotting disorder, they're more likely to to get a blood clot, or if they had heart disease are more likely to you know, have a cardiovascular event like a collapse, a neurologic problem. But most of it is actually the batch variability. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's impossible to ascribe motive. I, I think sloppy manufacturing, uh, the the lack of inspections are the most obvious explanations that we can find. And we still haven't seen the data for Moderna, for Janssen, AstraZeneca, or Novavax. Uh, so there's still a lot more investigation to be done. But this is prima facie evidence that we got a bad product problem. This was brought to the CDC and FDA in the United States by Senator Ron Johnson in 2021, and they did nothing. Now this Schmeling data has been out. It's so glaringly obvious that we've got a product problem, and none of the regulatory agencies have commented on it. They've not messaged on it. Finally, Kevin McKernan did get a spot at the most recent FDA meeting uh, as a public commentator. And he commented on his data where he's analyzed the vials and they are contaminated with cDNA. They're bad products. I mean, the bottom line is that's the conclusion. They're bad products. What you've mentioned is, uh, you know, how this was in the works. Let me give you a few other reference points. And what people will remember me for, I think, is just citing the data. Do you know no other doctor goes on the media or TV and actually cites the data as I do? None of them. None of them on either side of it. They simply freewheel information. So let me give you some citations. One by Lalani and colleagues, published in British Medical Journal, indicates that America has had a love affair with messenger RNA since 1985. It's old technology. 1985, the United States has invested tens of billions of dollars in this technology because it's kind of quick and easy genetic technology, coding for various proteins, uh, a technology looking for an application. In 2012, still on the website today, DARPA, the research arm of the military, announced the the ADEPT P3 program. And in that program, a research military program, they said they will end pandemics within 60 days using messenger RNA. Wait a minute, that's 2012. That's before Pfizer Moderna. So our U.S. military was involved in this. And then we realized that the United States National Institutes of Health, NIAID, and BARDA, the, the kind of military arm of the NIH, they funded Ralph Barrick and Vineet Manacheri at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. They encouraged them to collaborate with the EcoHealth Alliance, led by Peter Daszak. And you know what they produced? They produced the blueprints for SARS-CoV-2. And because it was gain-of-function research, the NIH allowed the research to go forward. They said they were, they were um, grandfathered uh, prior to Obama outlawing gain-of-function research, but they had to outsource it to Wuhan, China. So this goes to Wuhan, China, and Barrick publishes in 2015. He announces in Nature of Communications and in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that they've created SARS-CoV-2. They've created a bad coronavirus that can invade human beings. And you know, to this data, uh, to this day, the U.S. House, the U.S. Senate, the White House, no one will formally acknowledge those papers. So they're they're conducting investigations, trying to, you know, uh, trying to investigate around the edges. I've provided the papers directly to the directors of the committee. I said, read the papers. It's right here. They invented it. Um, The House Select Committee uh, for the uh, origin of the coronavirus in the U.S. Congress has made progress. They finally, under investigation, have former CDC Director Redfield and all the other agency officials to agree the virus came out of the Wuhan lab. That's where we are. National Security Administration, FBI, Department of Energy, CDC via Redfield. They all finally capitulated 
and agree it came out of the lab. But you know what we found out is that early in 2020, listen to this, early in 2020, Rear Admiral Brett Girard, somebody who went to the same medical school I did, he was in the White House with Trump. And he nominated three U.S. scientists to join the WHO to investigate Wuhan in 2020, January. And independent scientists, you know what the WHO did? They said, we don't want him. We want Peter Daszak of the EcoHealth Alliance. So that's the NGO that helped create SARS-CoV-2. Turns out Peter Daszak, recent uh, government data was just released. He had over a quarter million dollars in first class air, air airline tickets back and forth to Wuhan since 2017 and other places in China. Do you know the NIH just released more money to the EcoHealth Alliance to do more bad coronavirus research? Now, uh, Dasik is going to Singapore. He's working with Duke University in Singapore. So there's no end to the U.S.'s love affair with messenger RNA and bad coronaviruses. Uh, and we learned that, um, in fact, there was an intentional cover-up. This is something else that, that came out. In 2020, uh, Francis Collins, head of the NIH, who's now left, Anthony Fauci, head of NIAID, who's left, held a Zoom conference with Jeremy Farrar, who was at the Wellcome Trust as a scientist. Now he's with the WHO. Peter Daszak, EcoHealth Alliance, Christian Anderson from Scripps, Edwin Holmes from University of Sydney, and about a dozen other scientists. And you know what they agreed in that Zoom call? They agreed to conspire and deceive the world and say the virus came out of the fish market, that it came out of nature. And they knew it came out of a U.S. lab. But in fact, they published 12 fraudulent papers. So for three years, our U.S. government agency false narrative, and Canada followed suit on this, was that the virus came out of nature but in fact, all the government agencies knew it came out of Wuhan. 100%. And it got so bad. Now, listen, Tanya, it got so bad that mm-hmm. Congress held a vote, 419 to zero, declassify all the U.S. documents. National Security Administration, FBI, Department of Energy, NIH, uh, declassify them all. And you know what? 90 days have gone by. You know who has to declassify them? Averill Haynes. Averill Haynes is our director of national intelligence. Averill Haynes is not releasing the documents. And listen to this. You're not going to believe this. Averill Haynes was part of Event 201. Event 201 was this planning. Now we realize it's an operational meeting because the virus was already out of the lab. This was held in America in the fall of 2019. Averill Haynes was paired up with George Gao, the director of the Chinese CDC. And do you know what their task was in this exercise? Was how are they going to deceive the world if the virus came out of the lab? How are they going to manage social media? That's Avril Haynes. So she's actually, it turns out, she is an operative of the World Health, uh, the World Economic Forum. So almost all of these people now, they have profiles at the World Economic Forum. We've got U.S. senators. You have Justin Trudeau. You've got Governor Abbott of Texas. All the people at the event 201. This is astonishing. Then last week, the news broke. Finally, a Chinese scientist uh, basically blew the whistle and he reported through Chinese media. His name is Xiao Kao. And you know what he said? He said that his boss, and by the way, Xiao Kao used to work at University of Texas Medical Branch. So did his boss, 
Xin Peng, I believe. And now Xin Peng works for GlaxoSmithKline. But his boss at the time gave him four strains of coronavirus. Probably one of them was Ralph Barrick's strain and said, find out which one is most contagious and most lethal. And that was in February of 2019. So Tanya, you know what, I, what we think now is that the Chinese took over a U.S. asset, or at least one of them, and they may have tested it on human beings in China, either within the military or within the Wuhan environment. But it's clear, and CDC Director Redfield now clearly says, the virus was out of the lab and on the move by the time they held Event 201. So Event 201 wasn't a tabletop exercise. It was an operational meeting. Averill Haynes was in on it. So was all of our public health officials. It's so important to name all of these individuals, right? Because here in Canada as well, you might have heard that we had a, a lab in uh, Manitoba and there were two, two Chinese uh, researchers that were walked out of that lab. And of course, the CBC News, which is the, uh, the um, what do you call it, the communist arm of the uh, liberal government, all of a sudden we're reporting, nothing to see here, nothing to see here. And, you know, we all knew, especially as this uh, outbreak took place, that, uh, you know, that there was criminal activity. And, you know, I, I believe this is uh, treason in the highest places. And, uh, you know, with uh, treasonous activity, there's, uh, there's only one line of uh, defense, and that at some point in time, I'm hoping that uh, justice will prevail, and some of these people need to be lined up and uh, really held to account for the crimes against humanity that they've committed on a mass scale. I mean, this is this is turning out to be a mass genocide, and I don't think it's by accident, but by design. Your thoughts on that? In our book, Courage to Face COVID-19, everybody needs to get a copy of it. You know, I think we nailed it. We said that a syndicate had formed a biopharmaceutical complex. And we think at the top is the World Economic Forum, led by Klaus Schwab. Uh, in that complex now, very importantly, it includes the World Health Organization, the UN, the Gates Foundation, Rockefeller Foundation, Wellcome Trust, Gavi, the vaccine incubator, CEPI, formed by Gates and WF, the Center for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation, Unitaid, the regulatory agencies, so Health Canada, CDC, NIH, FDA, MHRA, TGA, EMA, SAFRA, and then the suppliers, the big pharmaceutical companies, Bavarian, Nordic, Genios, uh, GlaxoSmithKline, um, Pfizer, Moderna, Janssen, Novavax. They're working as a syndicate and trillions of dollars are flowing. And they figured out that if they can get a control over declaring health emergencies, the doors of the treasuries can open and the money flows. And, you know, because they're NGOs, most of them, they can invest. So the Gates Foundation invested heavily in BioNTech and they made fortunes. So they made money on this because they had all the inside knowledge. They were calling all the shots and this syndicate, this biopharmaceutical complex, has aspirations. Uh, Klaus Schwab, the leader of the World Economic Forum, of which a thousand of the highest, wealthiest CEOs, uh, heads of state, governors, congressmen, senators, they go to Davos every year and they meet on this. They meet on this. So this is in the open. Klaus Schwab in 2017 published a book called The Fourth Industrial Revolution. 
And Klaus Schwab said in the fourth industrial revolution that the human body will change, but the environment won't change. That will change the body, transhumanism. And you know what he also said? He said with, with great glee, he said in the fourth industrial revolution, the winner will take all. Like, what does he mean? Is he the winner? And are we the losers of his fourth industrial revolution? Schwab, uh, really a megalomaniac, uh, he published a book called The Great Reset, published just a few months after the COVID crisis started. That means he he's working on it far ahead of time. He said in that book, he said COVID-19 would be a limited window for a, a great reset, the, the establishment of a new world order. Well, what does he mean by new world order? Is he on top? Are they on top of an order? Are we on the bottom? I mean, these aspirational statements have to be taken very seriously. We think this syndicate is working. They're behind uh, the medical censorship that we're seeing, the Trusted News Initiative, and the BBC announced all the companies signed on to, YouTube, Twitter. They all agreed to this. They all actively suppressed and undermined any hope of treatment for COVID-19, uh, any mention of natural immunity or getting through it, and they absolutely railroaded the vaccines without informed consent and not allowing any information on vaccine safety to go forward. That's what this biopharmaceutical complex has done so far. And I think they could be behind this transgender craze that we see rising up all over the world. Oh, I'm 100% in agreement with you. I'm not sure if you're aware, but um, I've been on this journey for about eight years when Justin Trudeau was running for office is when I, began, when I got involved. I was just a regular citizen minding my own business with about 12 people on my email list and no cell phone, <laughs> living my life quite happily. And uh, anyways, so I started writing letters of concern over legalization of uh, marijuana and putting in the hands of uh, 12-year-olds and then into Bill C-16, which we call the bathroom bill allowing biological men into women and children's spaces, uh, the gender identity and gender expression amendments to the human rights code and into our criminal code, and uh, then from that into uh, something called Motion M103, which was about uh, basically uh, tearing down any of our defenses against radical Islam in Canada, and so on. Bill C-75 lessened the laws and the um, uh, consequences against sexual predators. I mean, they have been lining this up in Canada for many years. So when COVID struck, uh, so-called COVID, I was watching the very first news report and it was uh, people falling down in China. And I looked at that and I looked at my mom and I said, there's no way this is real. This is the next step in, in driving the force of tyranny. And so I immediately started to write a report called Government Corruption and Colluding with a Foreign Syndicate. And it, it's a very comprehensive report. It was on Justin Trudeau, his alignments with the WEF, what was going to happen to our businesses, our children, our elderly, and when I look back on the, how extensive the report was, it, everything has unfolded just exactly as I had said, and the level of government corruption. And so we were talking earlier, Bonnie Henry came to mind, and she's our health officer in British Columbia, and she was notified in early January 2020. 2021, sorry, of the harms by her own team of the injuries that were being experienced by people taking these jabs. And so I wrote this report. 
I had sent it as a campaign to every single one of our premiers, and I had a call to action where hundreds of people emailed them and said, you know, read this report, commence an investigation against the federal government, and get your citizens back to work. If the federal government isn't going to protect citizens, you need to. So this is May of 2020 at the onset. And there were crickets. So I knew instantly that all of our premiers were in on this. And then I sat down with our top RCMP in British Columbia in June of 2020, and I gave them all of these reports on Bonnie Henry, on Justin Trudeau. And he basically looked at me and said, uh, you know, if I had any evidence of the fact that I said that the premiers were making backroom deals with the um, prime minister to implement these lockdowns, and to uh, compel people to take these jabs. And when he asked me for evidence, I said, I've given you enough evidence here to uh, get this going. And I don't know as well if you know about Apotex, but they were the, one of the world's, world's largest manufacturers of hydroxychloroquine. And they were murdered in just before all of this has transpired. And uh, they were one of the ones providing uh, tests for people then, you know, I think it was the Lancelet. Remember they did that, that uh, report that was by a, um, a fraudulent organization? Uh, y- yes. And so then there was a lot of mud on the face of the, w- or, sorry, the WHO for supporting this report because that was the only one that they would uh, talk about. And it was saying, oh, stop hydroxychloroquine because it's causing heart attacks. Well, the individuals that wrote the report were fraudulent. They set up within three months and uh, their information, uh, you know, like I say, was fraudulent. And so then the the WHO, uh, several months later, they commence trials again of hydroxychloroquine at four times the recommended doses. And those Canada was one of the ones that signed on to those trials. And Apotex was the one providing the hydroxychloroquine for those trials in Canada. So that's why I say everything that you've just said has confirmed for me that the corruption is at the highest levels of government and that there's a very sinister agenda behind it all. It's true. You know, uh, hydroxychloroquine is, takes a really symbolic position in all of this, uh, remember 2006, there was clear data that hydroxychloroquine inhibit the viral replication of SARS-1. That had already been shown. All the things that you mentioned, you know, th- the very first drug in the United States that got an emergency use authorization was hydroxychloroquine. It wasn't needed because it was already on the market. In a very perverse way, our FDA gave it an emergency use authorization, but said only for the hospital then they quickly said, don't use it at all. We were, we were stuck. Uh, we know that uh, we actually had a hydroxychloroquine stockpile in the United States. Peter Navarro in the White House was in charge of it. Peter reached out to me personally, and I talked to him because Rick Bright inside the White House was blocking hydroxychloroquine. Bright ultimately took a job with the Rockefeller Foundation. They're part of the biopharmaceutical complex. Uh, we know that uh, FDA commissioner... Stephen Hahn, he's the one who really blocked hydroxychloroquine with the EUA. He joined the venture capital firm for Moderna flagship. Okay. Uh, now, separately outside the United States, Didier Rialt in France was working with hydroxychloroquine when it was over the counter. In mid 2019, France makes it prescription. Why did they make a prescription in mid 2019? Rialt shows it works in tens of thousands of, um, of, of, uh, of French uh, sick senior citizens in the French Riviera, 
and, and they go on to assault him. Do you know his university now has undergone this exhaustive review by public health agencies, hundreds of hundreds of thousands of, of pages and, and, and tens of thousands of hours. They've come up with questions on two papers, but they've actually notified 90 journals with issues of concern. They're trying to destroy Didier Rialt. You, you go over to Australia. This is astounding. Billionaire Clive Palmer, former member, uh, member of parliament. He started the United Australian Party. He pro procures a supply of hydroxychloroquine large enough for the entire Australian population. And you know what the Australian authorities do? They seize it and destroy it. They destroy it. Uh, and then the second largest hydroxychloroquine manufacturer outside of, tai outside of Taipei in 2020 burned to the ground. Right. So, you, you know, it these are the types of things you can't make this up. It, yeah. It's too complete. Uh, yeah. There appears to be a global syndicate and they will do anything that gets in the way of mass vaccination and they'll destroy it. Yeah, because for the mass majority of citizens around the world, COVID was not fatal. It it there it was treatable. Uh, when I was sitting across from the RCMP, I had ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine hydroxychloroquine reports uh, that I had provided to him, and I says, and and they're not uh, uh, um, recommending this as a, as a treatment. Now, his father had just been in the hospital uh, in early 2020, the spring, March, about April. Unfortunately, he passed away, but the he was assistant commissioner, RCMP at the time, and now he's deputy commissioner, but he admitted that there was no flood of patients or trauma in the hospitals. And so I'm sitting here across giving him these reports. I, you know, I, I, I provided him everything about the, uh, the, the um, Apotex and the murder of the individuals that uh, ran that, the Shermans. I mean, he's aware of all of this. And so I'm saying, I looked him square in the eyes and I said, they're committing murder because they were putting them on remdesivir and intubating them. And I said, they're committing murder. And, and so he'll never, in the end, when this all goes to trial, I've got all the evidence and support and I've shared it, so I'm not the only one with it, and, uh, you know, that these people need to, to be held to account. Uh, but I'm hoping our viewers understand that we're putting the pieces of this puzzle together for you because you, you've been fed by the mainstream media, you know, that this is, uh, you know, quite a different event than what's actually transpiring in the background. And when you see family members all of a sudden coming down with myocarditis and uh, at, uh, aggressive cancers, understand the first question you should be asking if they were jabbed. And, you know, many people are calling this actually a bioweapon. Well, you know, there's uh, two papers on the preprint server by Yen, and then one in the journal Military Medicine. First author is Farkas and colleagues. And they have concluded that SARS-CoV-2 is a bioweapon, that it was designed as a bioweapon. Now we have found out that new vaccine frontman Peter Hotez from Baylor College of Medicine in, in Houston, Tropical Medicine Dean, that he had... Uh, National Institutes of Health, NIAID grants, biodefense grants on guess what? SARS-CoV-2 back in 2015, receptor binding domain antibody uh, grants. And guess who they are with? The Chinese, Dr. Jiang at University of Fudan in Shanghai. 
So, you know, Cotez, he's part of this biopharmaceutical complex. So is Fauci, Collins, Jeremy Farrar. You know, Jeremy Farrar was at the Wellcomes Trust. He's been rewarded. He's now the chief scientist at WHO. All these people are moving within the complex. They're getting incredibly rich. Uh, and the Internet points out that uh, Hotez, he's like a doctor like me, an academic doctor, say he's now worth $35 million. The hmm. money's poor. He's won every award possible. He's been nominated for a Nobel Prize. His vaccine didn't save a single person. And he's been an absolute uh, wreck out there. Recently, uh, he was challenged to go on Joe Rogan. I communicated with Joe Rogan. Remember, I had set all the records on Joe's program. And I communicated with Robert F. Kennedy. I said, listen, you know, I'll just sit down and discuss vaccine safety with Hotez. He's junior to me. I've got about 685 listings in National Library of Medicine. He's had about 500. Average professors at 25. I said, I'll sit down. I know the data cold. Hotez will not face me. You know, when I've testified three times in the U.S. Senate, Fauci, Walensky, Jaw, Murthy, no one will face me in the U.S. Senate. No one. No. Well, you're you're a threat. You're a threat to their anti-intelligence <laughs> unit. Uh, and I mean that by, you know, just by the, the mind and thought that goes behind these gentlemen. Um, I am so, I thank God that there was no price that they could pay you to buy into all of this because your voice has just been so essential and you've been on the front line, uh, you know, exposing all of the corruption, uh, Dr. McCullough. I just want to go for a moment to you also, um, as this was going on with Denmark in the in the last couple of days and, and their report, it was understood that, um, I've written them down here, let me just see. So the Lancelet would not even published their report, nor, nor would Journal of the American Medical Association or the New England Journal of Medical Association and Archives of Internal Medicine. And so censorship seems to be a big thing with the Lancelet because you were just recently censored as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, let me give you some context. So I was contacted by the University of Michigan School of Public Health graduate student. We applied for a project. It was approved. We were going to review all the autopsies done on people who had died after the vaccine, a massive project. We reviewed hundreds and hundreds of papers, synthesized the database, ultimately got to case adjudication, had an expert team of doctors adjudicate each case, including you know former uh, uh, head of the Royal College of Pathology in Canada. We had the top people uh, adjudicate, and we ultimately got 325 cases of people who died after the vaccine, the top line result was 73.9% of cases, it was directly due to the vaccine or vaccine cons considerably contributed to it. That, that's the answer. So the next person who dies after, you know, receiving a vaccine or they die and, and there's no explanation and the family won't deny the vaccine, there's about a 74% chance it's the vaccine. That's a very, very important paper. Well, an average paper, you know, travels to about eight journals before it's published. It's not uncommon. So it went to New England Journal of Medicine. They said, no, thanks. It went to JAMA, Archives Internal Medicine. No, thanks. It goes to Lancet. It's interesting. Lancet sits on it for a few days. And uh, Lancet, uh, you know, invites us to put it on the preprint server, which is not peer reviewed. So we put it on the preprint server. It went through two sets of checks there. People looked at it to go on. And Lancet said, well, you know, we like the paper. We're not going to accept it, but we want to triage it to a lower journal called Medical Dialogues. 
And, you know, I've published in the main Lancet Journal. I published early in COVID. I published, I'm one of the most published people in COVID in the world. I said, no, I'm not going to go to a lower journal. I want to move on. So we took the paper on to American Journal of Medicine. That's where it is now. But we left the preprint up on the preprint server, which is perfectly fine to do. It's, you know, that's a very, you know, legitimate thing to do. Well, let me tell you what. This, this paper got on the preprint server. And last night, the downloads were by the hundreds per minute. People were, were wanted this paper. It was a very important paper. It was flying off the shelves all over social media. And then, you know what Lancet did this morning is they shut it down. They shut it down. They said, we're taking it off the preprint server. They said, uh, we don't think the conclusions are supported by the methodology. And the methodology is just, it's just, just you know, clear case review adjudication, you know, standard procedure. So this set off a cascade. It's basically like a Lancet gate. That Lancet is trying to suppress information. They're trying to suppress important information out there. Uh, we think the biopharmaceutical complex had a hand in it because Lancet actually obviously took it on the preprint server. So, you know, probably somebody influenced Lancet. The, the, the mother publisher, by the way, is Elsevier. They've done this before. And Lancet shut it down. So now Lancet is exposed. The Daily Skeptic had a big piece on it. Uh, it's interesting. If Lancet did not try to censor it, it wouldn't have gotten this press. I've had press interviews all day long on this. This paper is now better known than a standard paper published in Lancet. So their attempt to censor me is backfiring big time. It's the largest autopsy paper after vaccine deaths and the information will get out. Well, and this is what we've been waiting for as well, right, as evidence. And um, yeah, thank you, Trendio, for bringing that up. And I encourage people to review this report. I was talking to a contact of mine in the Maritimes, and they know a um, mortician. And normally they see one, they have one death per week. Now it's three per day. And I said, oh, I says, oh, come on. I says, you're kidding me, right? And he says, no, seriously, literally three a day. And you can't make this stuff up. There's the evidence is there. You know, the, the reports are going to be coming out. This is one of the first ones that, you know, I've seen. And thank God that it's getting a lot of attention. And along with the other information as well, I don't know how long these people are going to keep treading water and think that they can keep themselves, uh, you know, above water. Um, and, and, and I want to say as well that there's some some real good coming out of a terrible situation as far as this uh, mandate for the world to have this deadly, harmful COVID jab, is that I understand that one of their objectives was to get uh, people who, who weren't, like who were vaccine free, who refused to vaccinate their children, they wanted to get that down to 0%. They wanted every single person on this earth having a vaccine, and instead it's back backfiring. And now it's uh, increasing in numbers where I think 10% of the population is a report that I saw where parents are not wanting to now vaccinate their children. And um, I just want to cover a little bit of this at the end of the show here, because I am so impressed with the articles that you have been pumping out on all of this as far as vaccine injury is concerned with childhood uh, immunization and the reports that are associated with um, autism and autoimmune disorders, ADHD, et cetera. So uh, please share a little bit about that. 
It's true. You know, I had never critically reviewed the vaccines. The child, I'm not a pediatrician, and the only two vaccines that were in my area of medicine were influenza and the pneumococcal vaccines. And recent papers on the influenza pneumococcal vaccines, uh, one in MMWR by Chen and the other one in JAMA on the pneumococcal vaccine, show they, they simply don't work. They have 0% efficacy against hospitalization deaths. They, they don't work. So the adult vaccines have just fallen apart. They, they simply don't work. Uh, but the childhood vaccines, uh, a whole different story. And what we've seen is when I was a kid, uh, and I'm 60 years old, the rate of autism was one in 10,000. Now it's one in 36 on the CDC website. There's no childhood disease that is exploding in frequency at that rate. And autism is part of a collection of illnesses called the essence disorders. And that includes attention deficit disorder, Asperger's, autism spectrum disorder, and then some cognitive and language disorders. Um, but these whole group is exploding. And they are neuropsychiatric, meaning it's not, it can't just be environmental. It can't be from cell phones or TVs. There's something organic going on in the brain. And so what we've learned over time is, do you know, some of the childhood diseases themselves, like rubella, German measles, if a woman got German measles and the baby survived the pregnancy, about 10% of the babies would actually have autism back in the 60s before the rubella vaccine. So we know that German measles, for instance, is neurotropic. So is mumps. Uh, so is measles. Uh, that uh, polio is obviously neurotropic. So a lot of the diseases we're vaccinating against, uh, the organisms actually attack the brain. And as the organisms attack the brain, the inflammatory system attacks the brain. So as we sit here today, there's about 200 papers now showing that autism is related to the immune system. And the single greatest perturbation of the immune system in children is vaccination. In fact, it's hyper vaccination. So, uh, you know, when I was a child, I think there were just, you know, three shots, five antigens. A, a child in the first year of life now is, is getting salvos of vaccines, you know, and over the course of childhood, dozens and dozens of vaccines, sometimes six to 12 at a time. Uh, so there are clear cut uh, cases of the children having febrile seizures or near seizures, very high temperature, uh, chronic jerking, kind of uh, a, a doll's eye type reflex. And, and uh, then afterwards, they change. They don't suckle the same. They don't uh, track the mother's eyes. The parents know autism started literally after a round of vaccines. So that literature is building. Uh, and, and then we have, uh, you know, several papers, one by DeLong, I think one of the most convincing ones, showing that just by combining diphtheria, tetanus and pertussis, again, this hyper vaccination, that the rates of, of autism, you know, increased many fold. So in total, about 800 papers out there linking the essence disorders to hyper vaccination, no single vaccine itself does it, and no single congener. People have pointed to thiomerosol, which is mercury. Well, some of the vaccines have it, some of them don't. Uh, same thing with aluminum, some have it. It's not related to the congeners. I think it's related to the inflammation of hypervaccination. And it can happen with any vaccine, hepatitis B, the uh, Gardasil vaccine, which is given later. Uh, and, and so we're left with this uncomfortable feeling that, wait a minute, we, we've got an autism epidemic on our hands 
And maybe we created it through mass vaccination. So you can ask the other question. The other question is, well, what about the kids that go natural? Uh, you know, prior to COVID in the United States, it was 2.5% of, of parents went natural, no vaccines. Uh, many times because they already had a child with autism or a problem. Because the predictors of autism are older age of parents, uh, siblings with autism, then low birth weight babies, premature babies. That, that's it. So, um, uh, so we knew that. Now there's papers by Hooker, Miller, and Thompson, and Thomas, all showing the children who get no childhood vaccines have lower rates of uh, allergic asthma, allergic dermatitis, need for tamponostomy tubes, tonsillitis, lower rates of ADD and autism. In fact, non-existent. Non-existent. And so yes. it's now be. Yeah, it's now becoming clear. You know, this came to a head. Steve Kirsch and I testified in the Pennsylvania Senate, and Steve got on this topic. He said, find me an Amish kid with autism. They don't take any vac vaccines in Amish. Yeah. yeah so it's, it's not Yeah, it's not looking good right now. So, so uh, you know, we're trying to engage in discussions on this. Uh, recently, uh, there was a Dr. Tarek Butt who uh, got up in front of Robert F. Kennedy at one of these town hall meetings, and he said, measles have saved millions of lives, and chickenpox vaccine, he was going on and on. He was very confident reading his notes. And, of course, Kennedy knows all the safety data. And he said, sure, chickenpox, let's take chickenpox. Chickenpox has you know, clearly reduced the rates of chickenpox. It hasn't eliminated it, but it's reduced it. But the problem is now it causes more shingles as adults. So if you take the chickenpox vaccine, now you get to struggle with a higher rate of shingles as an adult. None of these vaccines are a free lunch. That, that's the point of them. So, uh, you know, I've analyzed, for instance, the measles outbreaks. Uh, the, the contemporary measles outbreaks, a decent proportion, 30 or 40 percent, are fully vaccinated. Same thing with mumps. Same thing as pertussis. So the vaccines, the childhood vaccines really don't work when there's an outbreak anyway. No, and they put such risk on the entire life of a child. Uh, you know, I've, I didn't realize my daughter is vaccine injured, but I didn't realize it until going through this. And I was reading a report today that was emphasizing it. And um, I mean, she's been diagnosed with ADHD, but the struggles that have come along with that. And then there's other there's other things that she's struggling with as well that I had no idea were directly related to this. And, you know, my son has uh, uh, eczema, psoriasis so badly, and he's taking care of it naturally and he's overcoming it. But had I known back then, because I would have been a bad parent had I not vaccinated my child. And that's the same thing that parents are going to continue to hear as Big Pharma uh, pushes this on their big money campaign. They don't care about the health of uh, our children. They don't care about the health of pregnant women. They don't care about the health of the elderly. Get this flu shot. Now you need this shingle shot. You know, take it whether you need it or not. And uh, all the fear mongering that goes behind it. If I could go back and do a do over, as I'm sure many people would, I would have chosen 100% not to vaccinate my children. And I'm so happy because um, I'm going to be a grandma, I just found out. <laughs> and uh, my daughter-in-law is uh, confirmed that uh, she is not going to move forward with vaccinating uh, the, you know, their children. Now, and Tanya, I'm so very can, pleased. Can I ask you, have you ever counted up the number of shots that you've taken yourself? 
Well, I've not had any, I never took any flu shots, so I hadn't had any other than the childhood vaccines, which were uh, four, uh, what is it, four shots, 16 doses. And now in Canada, I don't know what it is in the U.S., it's 16 to 17 shots, 72 doses. Now they're going to incorporate the COVID shot. It's going to be 108 toxic doses that we're putting in our children. Right. But but listen to this. Uh, I went through the exercise. Because people have said, well, you know, you're anti-vax. I said, no, I'm not anti-vax. I'm vaccine risk aware. I'm now aware of the risks. But listen to this. You know how many shots I've taken in my life? 69. 69 shots. I mean, come on. I can't be anti-vax. I'm loaded with this stuff. Turns out 40 of them were the flu shot. And 29 were other shots. I mean, I was went through an era where one of the polio vaccines failed. So we had to be revaccinated. When I, then when I went to medical school, they, they checked, I think, um, rubella titers or months. Then I had to get more MMRs. Uh, I, I've had to, I traveled to India. I got more shots. I've had, I've had 69 shots. So, I mean, I don't think people have a sense. They, they, they need to evaluate their own vaccine history and realize that some people are going to have side effects. Now, I'm lucky I didn't have any side effects, but, you know, I've got a brother who's got allergic rhinitis. And is that because he took uh, shots? The kids have uh, now astronomical rates of peanut allergies and other problems. Remember, the vaccines perturb the immune system. Mm -hmm. Some kids are going to end up with with allergies. And, and, And the thing that's really bothersome is, is when the immune system gets revved up, and particularly when there's a febrile seizure, febrile seizures are definitely related to the onset of autism and ADD, for sure. Mm. Well, the one thing I want to say as well is that uh, my mom as well, as we discussed this, she would have never had us vaccinated as well. But my brother ended up with type 1 juvenile diabetes when he was 15 years old. And he's had a lifelong struggle with this. He's a twin. Uh, We were born about a month early. I have uh, been diagnosed with an autoimmune disorder that I've struggled with for many years. And, And so the more I'm looking back on this and I'm seeing that, as you mentioned, in the Amish community, there's like zero autism and they're they live a much healthier happier life and you know measles and the mumps and all these things they build your immune system and back in the what is it about the 60s when they started really implementing the childhood vaccines is what had transpired i saw a chart once i think it was through uh, ted coons at vaccine choice canada and where there was measles and uh chickenpox and things like this, there was a, a huge decline. And, and then the vaccines were introduced and they said, okay, what changed in this huge decline? Well, it was there was fresh water and there was healthy food. And so diet, exercise, sleep is, you know, a very big part of having a healthy body. And I think the best immune immune system is the one that God naturally gave us. So I think that uh, a lot of people are turning back and relying on that. It's true, or at least doing risk stratification. I think one of the more compelling vaccines is rubella, and uh, it wouldn't be needed to prevent congenital rubella syndrome if German measles came back, but it's only in women as they approach childbearing years. It it would not be boys. Boys actually don't get serious German measles. So so to blanket all the boys with the rubella shot, which happened to me, uh, was completely useless. Uh, Let me give you another one. Uh, do you know that since the 1990s, every baby born in the United States gets a hepatitis B shot on day one? 
That's only needed if the mother's an IV drug abuser with active hepatitis B. I mean, it's given to every normal mother, you know, every normal baby out there. It's complete overkill. The baby's trying to get used to the new environment and get to know the mother and suckle. And poor baby is fighting off a, a fever from a hepatitis B shot. So I think what's going to happen is uh, parents are going to start to say no and go natural. Recent Kaiser Family Foundation study demonstrated, do you know of parents who themselves did not take the COVID shot? Do you know what proportion are going to say no to vaccines? It's about 30 percent. Mm-hmm. Well, this is great. Yeah. I mean, Dr. Tenpenny as well had never had a shot in her life and until she'd become yeah. a doctor and was at these conferences where they were talking about vaccine injury. She thought, what the heck is going on? I got to dig into this. And, uh, you know, so she's been an advocate to as well uh, try to ring that bell that to be cautious and uh, really do your research. I want to let our viewers know as well, Action for Canada has set up an amazing page and it is about childhood vaccines that you can go and do some research. We've got incredible videos, uh, one Wonderful information and just be responsible. Do the research first before you make this huge decision. We also have a page set up for Dr. McCullough. If you're struggling with the uh, jab or wanting to uh, keep yourself healthy, there's a protocol that you can be taking to address that. Um, Okay, well, uh, Dr. McCullough, I know there was one more question that I had that I wanted to ask you, and it sort of slipped my mind. But I'm going to look. Let me me just finish on a hopeful note. Uh, we do believe that three products now are, are playing a role in people recovering from the vaccines and from COVID is because they dissolve the spike protein. The human body can't clear the spike protein out from either COVID or the vaccines. And the first one is natokinase. Natokinase, uh, it's offered by the wellness company, spike support, two capsules twice a day. We now have wellness company Canada. Uh, so make sure you get you get spike support. And virtually every Canadian family needs this. Make sure you order okay. it. The other one is is called bromelain. It's derived from the stems of pineapples, also an enzyme, 500 milligrams once a day. You can get that on Amazon. Uh, and then the last one is curcumin. Get nano curcumin, 500 milligrams twice a day. Randomized trial now supporting that in post-vaccine, post-COVID patients. Uh, we're not going to have large definitive clinical trials. We're going to have to rely on judgment. It's been my experience now. It takes about two to three months, and people start to turn around after these long covid vaccine injuries, small fiber neuropathy, generally feeling unwell. So to summarize, natokinase, bromelain, and curcumin, we've got a paper in press on this. Other things can be added, N-acetylcysteine, and people have all different types of ideas. But the point is, do something because people are miserable after all these shots. I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. You know what, Dr. McCullough, I want to just actually, with the information that you've just given, is that on your webpage? Yeah, go to my page. That'll take it to Wellness Company. could you bring it up, please? Yeah, go to Wellness Company. Scroll down. You should see it there. And um, you will see uh, there. You can click on that. Go to that spike support formula. That'll start taking you. Start to learn about these products. Um, This is a critical one. By the way, Wellness Company is going to be offering spike support for kids. We just got that approved pediatric formulation doesn't have natokinase in it but it has pepine and uh, wellness company every canadian should be able to go to that website twc.health and you know order the product start taking control of your life you know we're told there's going to be another pandemic people are sick and tired of this um i i don't think canadians are going to stay in lockdown they're not going to put up with this they're going to take 
command of their healthcare. A hundred percent. Thank you. I wanted to bring the page up because so many times people are viewing this and then they get a little bit lost and we're going to have the link in the description and all of Dr. McCullough's uh, information to his Substack. Please sign up and follow him. Dr. McCullough, thank you so much. I look forward to having you on the show again. God bless you. Wow. (laughs) Was that an informative time with Dr. McCullough? We are just so grateful to him and all that he's doing to stand up and expose and give testimony uh, to what has been going on in the last, in the past three years and naming names. Uh, This is a time to shine a big light on the corruption and those who are behind it. And we believe in naming names. Okay, so coming up, I just want to let you know that we're going to have our guest Robert on next week. And he's going to be talking about the fires as the topic says they're global fires equals global control. And you will be 100% convinced of it after you have uh, seen this in Power Hour and his presentation. Uh, it, it was, uh, it literally is shocking to see the information that he provides. And then before we go to our Bible verse, I just want to mention that uh, coming up, as I mentioned in the weekly action, I'm going to be doing some traveling and some speaking, and I'm excited about that. It will start on August, uh, sorry, July 22nd in Ottawa. And then afterwards, I'll be going down into the Toronto area, Oshawa, Hamilton, etc. We will have the date set out, and I'm really hoping to meet some of you. And then I'll be heading over to New Brunswick and a tour through Nova Scotia. During that time on the Empower Hours, I had texted with Mickey Willis today to make sure that was all good, but we're going to have a movie marathon uh, because it's a lot of work for me to create the uh, calls to action and write about a guest and provide you compelling information to help you understand and, uh, you know, that what I'm presenting to you is true and to hopefully give you something that you can share with others. And so we're going to have a movie marathon. It's going to be the Plandemic series. Maybe there's some of you who have never watched it before, or you've got family members, co workers, friends who have been sitting on the fence, and maybe they're ready to hear this information, you can ask them over for a movie night. And I think that will be a lot of fun. Make some popcorn. It's not necessarily going to be so kid-friendly. Keep in mind, right, because we're going to be talking about the uh, global corruption and who is behind this and providing evidence of that. So I think that will be an extraordinary time. All right, let's close with the Bible verse. I'm, I'm ready to hear a little something from the Word of God. All right, Joshua 1.9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And I stand on that as a believer in Christ Jesus. I believe he died on that cross and my sins are forgiven, and I'm after after this world is done, I'm going to have a life in eternity. And you know, it's not just about being a good person. You know, don't don't get fooled by that. Uh, God came, God God created the whole earth and everything in it. And uh, prior to Jesus coming to the world, there were sacrifices that would have to be made, burnt offerings to the Lord to ask for forgiveness of sins. And God wanted us to know him. And so he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to represent him here on earth in a tangible way. And he modeled the goodness for us by which to live by. And uh, he suffered dearly on that cross for each one of us, that whoever believes in him 
whoever believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and they give their life to him will not perish but have everlasting life. So I, I pray that you will make that decision because you also will not walk in fear. You know, they can touch my body, you know, maybe they could take my life, but I don't fear because I know God is with us and he's asked us to be courageous and to fight for the widow and the orphan and for those who can't protect themselves. And the team at Action for Canada are working on behalf of each and every one of you because we love you. This is what true love is. It's sacrificial. All right. So thank you so much. We hope to see you next week. Please make sure that you share this video and our information, sign up for our Rumble page, and please donate to Action for Canada as we fight this battle. Uh, We need your support. Even a weekly donor, $10 a month uh, uh, committed to that really helps us out. So thank you so much. God bless you and God bless Canada. Evil people back.